Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program today, 877-973-7425. 877-97-ERIC. That is 877-973-7425. I uh, got Dr. Laura in the, yes, that Dr. Laura in the second hour. Uh, she's got a new book coming out. I will talk to her. Y'all, PETA has come out this morning and demanded UGA be released. That's right. The University of Georgia mascot, uh, PETA, says animals should not be mascots. And as a result, they want UGA released. Uh, they're, they're, let me read you the precise tweet. They have a picture of UGA up uh, asleep in his uh, doghouse, and they say he looks miserable, and they write it in all caps so you know they're yelling. He looks miserable. No dog deserves to be packed up, carted from state to state, and paraded in front of a stadium full of screaming fans. Animals are not mascots. UGA Athletics must retire Ugga immediately. He should be at home with a loving family. He is at home every Saturday with a loving family, you idiots. Ah, oh, these people. This, this in turn is the perfect segue into what I wanted to start with. Uh, are, are the Thanksgiving arguments you and your family may have? <laughs> every year. There are news stories out about arguments people have at Thanksgiving, and I, I, I want to I want to start with this point. Uh, Tom Nichols, who goes by Radio Free Tom on social media, he is a um, he's a a professor. Uh, he's written a book on experts. He is he is notably against the president. Gets all sort of hate for being against the president, and he. He replied to an innocuous tweet. The innocuous tweet was, uh, what's your controversial opinion about food? And miracle of miracles, Tom Nichols actually had the audacity to have a controversial opinion, which actually isn't a controversial opinion. It's just his opinion. And his opinion was that Indian food is terrible. Now you just you got to bear with me. You're wondering what does this have to do with me? Just 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 bear with me here. I, I am a professional. Tom Nichols has this in opinion that Indian food is terrible. Uh, other people had all sorts of opinions. Uh, the the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, said pie is not good, and people who think pie is good are wrong. Uh, and what was my controversial opinion? I, I like hamburgers more than cheeseburgers. A, a buddy of mine who's a member of Congress said he hates cheese altogether. That was his controversial opinion. Uh, someone replied that uh, New York pizza is not real pizza. Only Chicago pizza is pizza. That got a few hackles up. Someone else uh, said that they hate turkey for Thanksgiving and they would much rather have roast beef. And on and on it went. But Tom Nichols had the audacity to say Indian food is terrible, and people began uh, spittle-fueled rage at Tom Nichols. It has become an international story. I, I kid you not. In fact, earlier today, uh, as I was doing show prep for this here radio program, I went online. And, yep, here it is. Uh, top of the BBC, literally the top above-the-fold BBC website, Indian food is terrible tweet sparks hot debate. A tweet from a U.S. academic calling Indian food terrible has sparked a hot debate about cultural intolerance and racism in international cuisine. 
Indian food is terrible and we pretend it isn't, says international affairs professor Tom Nichols. Critics called his comment a tasteless generalization. The remark led to a wider discussion of the immigrant experience and how many in the U.S. have experienced racism in relation to food. Oh, I... We should do an FFS segment in this um, in this show because this would qualify for it. If if you know, you know, y'all. This is this is <laughs> so stupid. Um, I mean, people are. Oh, the, let, let's see. Uh, so someone from India or tweeted, "Dude, really, dude? Where in India have you eaten?" A billion fans can't be wrong. Oh. Okay. So. People get worked up over the stupidest things. You know, I disagree with Tom Nichols. In fact, I grew up in Dubai, and our housekeeper was from Bangalore, India, and we would go out of town. Every few months, we would have to leave the country for a week to get our visas renewed. We would come back, and there was always a, a beef or a chicken curry waiting for us and warm samosas and more. Uh, I love Indian food. I grew up eating Indian food. I, I make curry in my house. In fact, I, I, I should send out my curry recipe. Uh, text recipe to three, three, seven, seven, seven. I'll send you my curry recipe. Uh, I got a great chicken curry recipe. I learned it from my housekeeper from India. It took me years to, to match her recipe and, and her flavor profile. You know, the, what the secret is to make curry. Interestingly enough, uh, it's the same secret to make, uh, my sweet potato pie. You use whole sticks of cinnamon and you drop the cinnamon into the hot oil or butter, and that releases the oils from the cinnamon stick, and so you get a, a more distinct uh, flavor. Same with cloves and other other spices. You you put them into oils. Uh, the the spices they don't the flavor profiles don't break down in water. You have to put them in oil to break down, and so that's what you do. And I finally figured this out. It was a sneaky trick Anna never told me growing up. I figured it out. But anyway, so Nichols is now, there, there are stories in the BBC, uh, the Hindustan Times, uh, the Jerusalem Post, uh, Russia Today. It, it's all, it has become a global story. One man in America asked for his controversial opinion on food, dares to actually have a controversial opinion. And it's become an international story. Rick Perry was speaking the other day. I, I'm going to play for you again the the entire soundbite of what Rick Perry said so you can hear it for yourself. I played it yesterday. This is Rick Perry talking about God and Trump. God's used uh, imperfect people all through history. King David wasn't perfect. Uh, Saul wasn't perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. Uh, and I actually gave the president uh, a little one-pager on those Old Testament kings about a month ago. Hmm. And I shared it with him. I said, Mr. President, I know there are people that say, you know, you, you said you were the chosen one. Uh, and and I, I said, you were. I, I said, if, if you're a believing Christian, you understand God's plan uh, for the people who uh, rule and, 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 and judge over us on, on this planet in our, in our government. And less people on the left attack Rick Perry, he pointed out to me, he believes Barack Obama was sent by God as well. He said for that moment and that time, he said he thinks for this moment and this time, Donald Trump was sent by God to do great things. Notice the point. He said that about Donald Trump and he said that about Barack Obama. The, the, it is a very basic, fundamental, particularly within Protestantism. Uh, understanding that Romans 13 says that God appoints our leaders. And in that case, uh, God has appointed Donald Trump in the same way he appointed Barack Obama. That's why both Paul and Peter admonish us to pray for the authorities in charge of us, that they may do God's will. 
You know, in Romans 13, interestingly enough, someone asked me, well, if that's the case, was the uh, it was the American Revolution against God? Uh, Romans 13, which says that God appoints our leaders and we're to respect our the authorities above us because God has put them there, was the most cited passage by American revolutionaries justifying the American Revolution. And their argument was that God had appointed their leaders, and their leaders were men like George Washington and Ben Franklin, and uh, they were under the yoke now of leaders who clearly had abdicated their responsibility and did not want to lead them. And that was their justification. Romans 13 was more cited uh, by American revolutionaries than any other piece of scripture, including Old Testament pieces that had in in the run-up to it with the Stamp Act had been cited. Now, you don't need the history lesson to understand this, uh, that CBS News, CNN, and other news outlets ran the Rick Perry story, and they added to what Rick Perry had actually said, uh, like progressive Christians all over the place. They, They added to God's word. They said that what Rick Perry's argument was is that since Donald Trump had been appointed by God, you have an obligation to support Donald Trump. You are obligated to support Donald Trump because Donald Trump was, was put there by God. That's not actually what they said. That's not actually what Rick Perry said. That's not actually what scripture says. But that was the headline. So I I, I raise all of this this morning out of the gate because you're going to see a series of stories uh, through the end of the weekend uh, on Thanksgiving arguments. A lot of people will take off Friday, will go into the weekend, and you will have multiple arguments from multiple news outlets. They've already started. They started on Sunday. I started seeing them. Uh, What do you do when you argue at Thanksgiving? I have seen people uh, citing left-wing publications about how you are under obligation if your family supported Donald Trump. You're under obligation to shout them down over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, to denounce them, to throw them out of your house. I actually saw someone say that uh, she loves her relatives, but they voted for Donald Trump and she's holding them accountable by denying them the right to participate in Thanksgiving. Really? Politics is so much more important to you than family. You're ousting your family. Well, the media is not helping this situation. There is no reason one person on Twitter saying he didn't like Indian food should be a story around the world in India, in Israel, in the UK, in Russia, in the United States. There's no reason for that. The only reason is clicks because outrage generates clicks and clicks generate revenue. And so little social media nerds at little news outlets and large news outlets alike around the world find the most outrageous thing they can possibly find to generate clickbait. And they salaciously write the title to make you have to click through to see what's going on. And you go in and if you bother to read, you say, well, this isn't anything. Very much like the Rick Perry story. If you actually clicked in and read what Rick Perry actually said, your conclusion has to be, well, he didn't say what the headline says he said. But people don't actually do that. And the media knows people don't actually do that. What people do is they read the headline or they read the tweet and they get mad about it. And they rush to social media and they share the link with all their friends and they generate outrage traffic for the media organizations. And the little social media nerds get money based on the clicks they bring in. The reporters who wrote the story get money based on writing the report in a way that generates the outrage. And everybody profits except for the national discourse, except for the country. I mentioned yesterday, I I had some complaints from, from some listeners about the the clips that I play on the program, that that some of them, for example, uh, there was a clip, I cannot now remember the one I played the other day, um, but I played it, it was about a minute clip, and they had heard it on a different radio program, and 
Uh, it was only they only played like 12 seconds of it. It was oh, it was a Democrat saying something. Uh, I cannot remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the, the point is they were upset. Well, I don't know why you needed to play that entire minute when you could have just played the 12 seconds. Well, the reason I played the entire minute is to put it into proper context so you can decide that there really isn't anything as much needing to be outraged by as opposed to the people who played the 12 seconds. It sounded really outrageous. When you put it in its entire proper context, you can understand that actually what they said wasn't that bad. And when I explained it to the people, they're like, oh, yeah, OK, I, I understand now. But the media does it with, with tweets and the like and, and these stories, the media increasingly, they don't want to put things in proper context. In fact, they willfully want to take things out of context and allow you, the reader, to have to click through beyond the headline and actually read down into the story to figure out what is true and what is not, as opposed to them providing facts. And I'm deeply disturbed by the trend, more so because it is a profit margin. And there's nothing wrong with profit, but I think there is something wrong with the media pontificating about the president's truth and then willfully distorting things to generate revenue for their news outlets. We live at a time where the media more and more does not have uh, the the trust of the American people. In fact, the media reputation increasingly is ruined uh, with the American people. And this is only creating a, a feedback loop of hate for the media when they do these sorts of things, because half the people get fueled up by it and hate the person who said they, they hate Tom Nichols for saying he hates Indian food. They hate Rick Perry for saying you've got to bow before God and, and Donald Trump. But the reality is that Tom Nichols had a very innocuous opinion, and it was his own opinion, and he wasn't pushing it on everybody else. And Rick Perry didn't actually say you got to bow before God and support Donald Trump or you're sinning. You would never know that from the press. So you're going to have your, your family get-togethers over the weekend. You're going to have Thursday. You're going to have Friday. You're going to have the weekend. You're going to have to deal with the leftovers. You're going to have to turn your leftovers into my turkey gumbo. Hope you got that recipe yesterday. And some members of your family will decide because so much of the press has focused on arguments at Thanksgiving that I guess this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have political arguments. The fact is, no, you're not. One, turn away from the media, except here. You want to listen to here because I give you the context. Two, enjoy your family. Three, understand moving forward that so much of the media is now designed by design is designed to get you outraged so that you do fight and you do click and you do share and you do hate tweet and all of that to perpetuate a story. It's not healthy for conversation, for civility, for civic society. And yet it's the way the media has decided to generate revenue. And yet the media denies it. So when it's very clear, you just don't believe your lying eyes. Yeah, you know, I should send out the career recipe. I've got other recipes. My, my molasses uh, ginger snap cookies, I guess I need to send out. It is that holiday season. Text recipe to 33777. While you have your phone out, I need to tell you something. Uh, one of the things you will notice about this program is is when you hear, when we go to commercial break, you hear your local advertisements. We, we don't have any advertisements on our program. Uh, we hope to get advertisements on our program to help us keep the lights on and pay the bills. But right now, uh, we were able to raise some initial money from some people who like the idea of having a statewide radio program in Georgia for uh, conservatives, for uh, a news program outside of uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting and the like. We hope to long-term expand through the southeast and eventually nationally. But right now, uh, this program is funded out of pocket, uh, my pocket. I make no money. I, I, I don't even get a salary from it. I'm working five hours a day and get paid for working uh, for my, my other job. Um, but we rely on listeners and we rely on readers to the resurgent. We had a donor come forward 
who likes the idea of what we're doing. Essentially, my plan, I'll be very upfront and honest with everybody here, uh, my plan for this radio program is with Georgia being a swing state next year, being a battleground state, I think this is a program that could stand it could benefit by being in every corner of the state and we are well on our way to making that happen by january we should cover almost 100 percent of uh, radio listeners in georgia but to get there we got to have listener help to do it because we don't have any ads our, we will have advertising coming on board in a couple of weeks uh first ad but until then we got to have help and we had a donor come forward who said they would match $20,000. If we could raise from listeners and readers of The Resurgent, they would match us. Uh, We've raised as of this morning. That happened at about 3 o'clock yesterday. We've raised half of that. Uh, so we got we need to raise the other half. If you're interested in helping support the show, help us grow through the state of Georgia and beyond. Help us uh, allow conservatives across the state to connect and to get out news. Text DONATE to 33777. You'll get a donate link back. Uh, I hate to sound like it's a public radio fundraising door, but frankly, it is. Oh, we don't have any ads on the program. Now, if you want to advertise across the state of Georgia, from North Georgia to South Georgia, from East Georgia to West Georgia, uh, you can reach out to us as well. Call 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Our call screener can put you in touch with the right people to uh, advertise across the state of Georgia if you got a brand. But uh, either way, uh, we want your money. We want your business. We want your years. Uh, and that's why we're doing this. It is a labor of love. I'm, I'm happy to, to, my wife and I both, I, I should say, this is a, uh, I am married and my wife fully supports doing this. We both believe in the value of this show and what we're doing and the long-term growth of it. I, I have had plenty of offers in the past to go elsewhere and do other things. And I always felt like I was rushing, you know, just a a random aside here. And I didn't mean to spend this long on this. Um, I have friends who rushed into syndicated radio and they, they did so largely because they, they wanted to, um, they wanted to be big. They wanted to make money. And I have always thought I needed to do something I'm passionate about, even if it meant I'm not making as much money as I could have otherwise made. And I like the slow and steady approach, a very deliberate process to growing this radio program. I'm, I'm a fan of the idea. Uh, sometimes it frustrates me because I see, frankly, I, there are some, some terrible radio show hosts who are, who are trying to make it big. And I'm like, you, you, throwing red meat to the crowd so you guys can, can seal clap may sound good to some people, but I personally would prefer to make you think and give you the entire analysis. And, and as came up in the last segment with people complaining about some of the, the length of the sound clips, and I would rather give you the proper text of what someone has said, uh, than just throw red meat at you, distort someone's words, because we do live in an age where that's so easy. I've had it happen to me. I have had people distort my words, and I don't want to do that to other people as best I can and set the record straight when I can. Um, I'm I'm a conservative. I'm a Christian. I That is my worldview. That's how I deliver the news and see the world and give you opinion, and your mileage may vary on that, but I, I think it is distasteful to just throw chum in the water when there's so much other important stuff out there, um, which is why I'm also opposed to talking politics at Thanksgiving. There's just no point. Uh, but anyway... 
If you're willing to step up and help, uh, text the word donate to 33777. Uh, we got about 10,000 more dollars to raise on this to, to get the full matching money. Um, and I do appreciate it. Now, we got other stuff. I, I got to tell you about the, the poor Chihuahua. I wanted to talk about the story yesterday and, and ran out of time. In 30 seconds, I've got here. Uh, poor Chihuahua in Slidell, Louisiana, my home home. Uh, a couple was pumping gas in Slidell when somehow their five-pound Chihuahua got behind the steering wheel put it in reverse, rolled out of the gas station across four lanes of traffic and into another gas station on the other side of the street before coming to a stop. I'm assuming there was a Taco Bell on the other side of the street and the Chihuahua had to go eat. Uh, We'll be back with more news. In an hour from now, uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger is going to join me to talk about her new book. Um, uh, I I assume she's going to... So where I got an email, um, when was it? On... Gosh, last Friday, I guess, say, just from from a lady saying, hey, let us know if you want to interview Dr. Laura. She's got a new book coming. My wife and, and daughter absolutely adore Dr. Laura. In fact, I, I'm I'm ha- going to have to lock the doors of my studio so they don't rush in and try to hijack the interview with her. <laughs> and so we emailed and I, I just part of me is always has head in the back of my head is, is this legit? Um, I'm assuming it is. She has a new book coming out. Uh, in fact, my wife got the book and I haven't even had a chance to really devour it. I flipped through some of it to be able to conduct the interview, but we will see. Um, Democrats are having a meltdown over president Trump and the dog yesterday. Did did y'all see the video? Excuse me, the, the video of, of the president and the dog, uh, he and Melania Trump and the vice president and the dog's handler uh, were at the White House. The Conan is the name of the dog, not after the barbarian, but after the talk show host. Uh, so Conan, not Conan. And uh, the president loves the dog. I, I got to tell you, I agree with uh, my friend Mary Catherine Ham. No, no, no. It was uh, Amanda Carpenter who said maybe we should stop doing uh turkey pardons and just highlight service dogs every year at thanksgiving it makes me think of the two dogs up in rome i talked about yesterday uh the wrga is highlighted you've got two police canines uh and they're responsible for basically two point some odd million um drug seizures in dollars, two points, I think 2.2 million, something like that. Impressive numbers for these dogs. And they're Belgian Malinois as well. Gorgeous dogs. But the, the media, I shouldn't say the media by and large, it is activist Democrats are horrified. The president and first lady uh, seem to step away from the dog as if they were scared of the dog. The, do you know what this dog does? The dog bites people's hands off. Uh, Of course, they should be intimidated by the dog. Now, the vice president and this dog got along. It was so funny. I actually got a note um, from one of the vice president's staffers yesterday laughing. The vice president loves my dog, Maggie. And um, that did you seem going to make Maggie jealous um, that the vice president and this Belgian Malinois I mean, they couldn't get enough of each other. The vice president is petting all over this dog. Every time he pulls his hand away, the dog reaches over with his head and starts batting the vice president's hand, and the vice president starts petting him again. And meanwhile, the president and first lady are standing up front. But, you know, the the, the fact that people are looking at this, and oh, by the way, they were mocking uh, Melania Trump's outfit. Remember when it was racist to mock the the first lady's outfit, that you were racist if you, if you didn't like her outfit? It's just... It's so ridiculous. It really is. Uh, the, the the level of hysteria out there in the media these days over all of this stuff is just, it's it's silly to me. 
what is also silly is some of the Democratic conversations now on impeachment. You know, um, what's her name? Brenda Lawrence. Brenda Lawrence is a, a member of Congress. Uh, she is in Michigan. And she has come out and said that she's basically tired of the impeachment hearings, that maybe he should be censured. Uh, this is from the Washington Examiner, Tim Pierce. Lawrence appeared on the Michigan radio show No BS News Hour with host Charlie LaDuff on Sunday to discuss impeachment. Lawrence told LaDuff to his surprise she does not support removing the president from office and that she would ask her caucus to censure him instead. We're so close to an election, I will tell you, sitting here knowing how divided the country is, I don't see the value of taking him out of office. I do see the value of putting down a marker saying his behavior is unacceptable. I want to censure. I wanted to put on the record of the House representatives did their job. They told the president and any president coming behind him that this is unacceptable behavior and under the Constitution, we're not going to allow it. I feel strongly that for my legacy, for my time in history, sitting there at this table with an oath of office to protect this country, to protect the democracy of the United States of America, I cannot sit silent and that I must move forward with impeachment because this is egregious, she said a month ago. And now she's changed her mind, and in large part, she's changed her mind because of the election of the national divide. See, what's happening is the polling is increasingly showing nobody's mind is being changed. And because nobody's mind is being changed, uh, some Democrats in the House are starting to think, we should settle this at the election. We should not settle this with impeachment. Um, it, now, here's the interesting nugget that is being left out of a lot of the news reports about Brenda Lawrence. You're probably thinking this woman must be in a swing district and she's scared. This must be like Lucy McBath here in Georgia's 6th Congressional District. Swing district uh, doesn't want to anger the voters right now. Polling suggests uh, voters are split. I, I read you the Vanity Fair piece yesterday that independent voters, uh, when you actually push them on impeachment, turns out they don't like the president. They want to vote against the president. They don't want Democrats to preempt their ability to vote against the president. There's very interesting, actually, a CNN poll came out today that uh, 45% of voters support impeachment, 50% support removing the president. In other words, more people want to vote against the president uh, at the ballot box than actually have Democrats removing from office. But with Brenda Lawrence, is very interesting. She's not actually a swing state congresswoman. Well, I shouldn't say swing state. Michigan is a swing state, but a swing district. Her district is D plus 30. D plus 30. That means that a generic Democrat versus a generic Republican on the ballot, the Democrat will win by 30%. Yeah. Yeah. D plus 30. 30 points for the Democrats. And it's this person. See, a lot of people were thinking it would be the swing district Democrats, like Lucy McBath, who would come out and say, let's censure, let's do something, let's not do impeachment. And that's not actually what's happened. What's happened is you've got uh, firm Democratic districts coming out. And those firm Democratic districts are saying, wait a second, the country is badly divided. And y'all, this has been my argument on impeachment. Even if you accept the president shouldn't have done what he did, and, and I, by the way, am a, of the vein that, yeah, the president should not have done what he did. But I also think this is an issue for the voters to decide. We are in a badly divided nation. It is a 50-50 divide. 
And I think that if we allow Congress to remove the president, and it's not going to happen anyway, frankly, I, I don't think. Uh, it's going to go to the Senate, and, and I think there are Republican senators. If the Democrats could find a smoking gun in the House, that they would shift opinion in the Senate, but they haven't done that. They, they've cut everything short. They haven't interviewed Mulvaney. They haven't interviewed um, Bolton or any of the others. So I, I think what you're going to have is a situation where the Democrats can't get this through the Senate. And it's just going to further divide the nation. Let the voters deal with this instead of having half the country say this was a coup. Because that's the way it is is portrayed by Trump supporters is that it is a coup. And I get blowback from Trump supporters for saying it's not. It's a, it's a legitimate constitutional process, even if you disagree with it. But there is a lack of trust in the media when it comes to impeachment. There is a lack of trust in the media when it comes to facts. I started the show this morning with how the media is whipping people into a frenzy, and, and more and more people realize the media is dividing people and whipping people into a frenzy, and they're, they're playing on the fears of people. They're playing on division. They're stoking division. They're, they're fracturing the country, and impeachment would just divide us even further. And that's part of what this Vanity Fair story got out yesterday. Let, let me let me play you a, a clip from this is the, the Washington, I think it's Rachel Bade um, from the Washington Post talking about how Democrats are starting to read the impeachment um, polling. Yeah, I think what we're starting to see is, you know, when the impeachment inquiry was first announced and they started to do these depositions, a lot of people were asking, can Nancy Pelosi peel off any Republicans? And I think um, in this final impeachment vote, but I think increasingly the question is becoming, does she lose more Democrats? Because Republicans have really sort of um, unified behind the president. And although two Democrats voted against the impeachment inquiry rules that they voted on a couple weeks ago, you know, we are hearing behind the scenes there are more moderates who are getting cold feet. And it all comes back to these ads and people being afraid of being punished for voting to impeach the president. And it's being punished for voting to impeach the president. The Democrats are starting to be scared as well. Why? Well, I played you part of the ad yesterday. I want to go back to the CNN audio from yesterday about the um, about the president. He's going after Joe Cunningham. Joe Cunningham is a uh, moderate Democratic congressman, newly elected, I think, in New Jersey, who's starting to get cold feet on impeachment. Let me play this discussion from CNN for you. An important but Republican voters remain loyal. And some recent polling suggests independents are perhaps growing more wary of impeachment. Lawmakers are home in a break right now, and that allows them to get a local pulse. For many House Democrats, that means testing the effectiveness of Republican impeachment attack ads. Their partisan impeachment is a politically motivated charade. Joe Cunningham promised to be different, but he's not. Instead of working to secure our border, fix health care, and pass a new trade deal with our neighbors that creates real jobs, he supported the partisan impeachment investigation. It is fascinating for both sides here. The politics are risky for both sides here. And the thing is, we just don't know where we are today versus where we're going to be come the early nominating contest and the Democratic presidential race and then come almost a year from now in November. Mm -hmm. And so far, uh, Republican outside groups have spent some $8 million or more on these impeachment ads, these anti-impeachment ads, and compare that to Democrats, which have only spent about $3 million or so. So 
These vulnerable House Democrats have expressed concern to leadership this week ahead of the Thanksgiving break, saying we don't want to be playing catch up. We're worried about our reelection bid. You know, it's an interesting though that ad that you just played is an interesting kind of uh, echo of what the Democrats did two years ago in the mid in the midterms when they were the ones arguing that the president is obsessed with the border and invasion and the caravans coming up and what we should be talking about is health care and mm -hmm. you know the issues that are that sort of really matter to people and so the republicans in this sense are turning that on its head and saying no 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 this time it's the democrats who are obsessed when we should be sort of moving on to other issues yeah this is going to have an impact the ad campaign that's going on right now with these moderate democrats is going to have an impact i'm surprised we haven't seen them more aggressively pushing Lucy McBath in the 6th District here. I suspect uh, there's so much funding happening right now for Karen Handel's campaign. Uh, I suspect we're going to see this. She, now, Handel, you should know, is not a lock. She's got uh, Marjorie Green is running against her. The other opponents have dropped out. She is being backed by Johnny Isaacson and David Perdue. Uh, both of them will weigh in more aggressively to support Handel uh, in this. They think she's the best bet to pick off Lucy McBath, but it's notable there hasn't been a ton of money into that district targeting McBath publicly. I'm told there's been some behind the scenes, but this is something the Democrats do have to worry about now with the polling showing that people are hardening their positions. The people who wanted the president impeached last month want him impeached now with vigor. The people who wanted him supported last month now do so with vigor. Uh, very few people have shifted, maybe 3 to 4% within the polls' margins of errors. Now, the average for the polling still has a plurality of Americans supporting impeachment, uh, but it's not that significant. The key here is it's not enough to get Senate Republicans to change their mind. And if Democrats aren't going to go further with this, they're going to have a hard time. Uh, Don McGahn has been ordered by a federal judge to testify, but the testimony he's going to give is completely different from this. And that's also part of the Democrats' problems. They've had competing narratives, uh, competing stories, and competing Im impeachment processes that have left everyone confused as to what's actually going on. McGahn is being told to testify before the House committee investigating whether or not uh, the Trump campaign lied to the Mueller investigators in the grand jury. See, they do think that if the president lied, uh, that that's what Bill Clinton did and all the Republicans who voted for impeachment against Bill Clinton for lying under oath to a grand jury would have to support impeaching the president for lying under oath to a grand jury. And it makes perfect sense. But did he? Uh, it, it seems the Mueller report seems to suggest that, no, he did not, that the president wasn't clear, but he was not lying. The de Democrats, though, risk more and more people viewing this as an impeachment expedition or a fishing expedition, trying to find the grounds to impeach the president as opposed to actually knowing where they're headed with this. And, you know, the Democrats can say, well, look, we think he did something wrong. We want to find out this is an investigation. And that's fine. But to have not a very clear articulated idea going into this and just call it a bunch of witnesses and a bunch of separate probes, it really muddies the message more than I think the Democrats can risk right now when the public positions are firming, fewer and fewer people are willing to shift. That matters ultimately when you want to try to persuade a two-thirds of the Senate made up mostly of Republicans that they've got to throw out their own leader. Okay. Oh, man. Welcome. Uh, you, you can call in if you want. 877-973-7425. 877-973-7425. <laughs> 
GQ has had to update a story about Alexander Vindman, who testified before the House Impeachment Committee. Uh, and there's a thread going on Twitter of great corrections from the press. Here we go. Uh, this is the GQ correction. This story has been updated. Alexander Vindman received a purple heart after being wounded by an IED or improvised explosive device, not an IUD or intrauterine device. We regret the error. <laughs> That's an actual correction in GQ that he was he was wounded by an IED, not an IUD. <laughs> wow. Okay. Reading a few more of these, uh, this in the New York Times, <laughs> an earlier version of a tweet in this column misstated the name of its writer. As her Twitter handle correctly notes, she is Julian C. York, not Chilean J. Yikes. That's a pseudonym she created for Halloween. <laughs> Another New York Times one. Because of an editing error, an article on Monday about a theological battle being fought by Muslim imams and scholars in the West against the Islamic State misstated the Snapchat handle used by Suheb Webb, one of the Muslim leaders speaking out. It is Imam Suheb Webb, not Pimpin' for Paradise 786. <laughs> Here's another one. Um, because of an editing error, an earlier version of this article misidentified Ivanka Trump as President Trump's wife. His wife is Melania Trump. Ivanka Trump is one of his daughters. An earlier version of this article misstated whom Vice President Joe, Joseph R. Biden kissed on Tuesday. It was Senator Charles E. Grassley's wife, not Mr. Grassley's mother. Most of these are New York Times. Uh, because of an editing error involving a satirical text-swapping web browser extension, an earlier version of this article misquoted a passage from an article by The Times reporter Jim Tankersley. The sentence referred to America's narrowing trade deficit during the quote-unquote Great Recession, not during, quote, the time of shedding and cold rocks. Pro tip, disable your millennials to snake people extension when copying and pasting. That's actually in the... <laughs> The New Yorker has a has a um, correction. Uh, the, the original in this week's issue, Rodrigo Duterte uh, reports on what happens when a populist demagogue takes power. Uh, correction, a previous alert misstated the author of the story about a populist demagogue. The author was Adrian Chan, not about, and Rodrigo Duterte was the subject. <laughs> In the Financial Times from a couple of weeks ago, an earlier version of this article incorrectly stated that the Salt Lake Tribune has a full-time jazz reporter. It, in fact, it has two reporters who cover Utah jazz, the local basketball team, not dance. This has now been corrected. Oh, what is this? Uh, an April 5th story. This is the Spokesman Review in Spokane, Washington. An April 5th story stated that Mary Frajo did not return a reporter's call seeking comment. Frajo died last December. Yikes. Uh, and this is from, I'm not sure what newspaper this is from. Due to a typing error, Saturday story on local artist John Henninger mistakenly reported that Henninger's bandmate Eric Lidde was on drugs. The story should have read that Lidde was on drums. The Sentinel regrets the error. <laughs> An earlier version of the story misidentified the fictional character named 
Bannon used to refer to Jared Kushner as Frodo, a Lord of the Rings reference, rather than Frito, a reference to Godfather. In a previous correction of this post, we corrected something that was actually correct. So we have corrected the correction. It had to do with Celsius temperatures. That is from National Public Radio. Uh, and then there's this one. This is uh, 26 years ago. This was a correction in the New York Times. <laughs> Because of a transmission error, an interview in the Egos and Ids column on May 16th with Mary Matlin, the former deputy manager of the Bush campaign, who is a co-host of a new talk show on CNBC, quoted her incorrectly on the talk show host Rush Limbaugh. She said he was sui generis, not sweet generous. Oh my, due to an oversight involving a haphazardly installed Chrome extension during the editing process, the name Donald Trump was erroneously replaced with the phrase someone with tiny hands when the story was originally published. That's on a website, uh, Slate, I do believe. Uh, and this is from um, The Lily. We have updated the language in this piece to more carefully describe why Taylor Swift's fan base is mostly white. And on and on it goes. Um Wow. The number of corrections from the American media. You know, what's so interesting here, honestly, is one, the, um, oh, oh, hang on. We've got some, we got some new, oh gosh. Um, Jay Powell has died. Uh, this he's from Camilla. Jay Powell is the Georgia house rules chairman, 67 years old. The AJC is breaking the story. The chairman of the influential Georgia House Rules Committee, State Representative Jay Powell, collapsed and died Monday during a retreat of legislative leaders at Brasstown Valley Resort. He was 67 years old, a lawyer from Camilla. He was an advocate for rural Georgia and authority on tax policy. My goodness, that is completely unexpected. Prayers for his family as this news begins to trickle out across the state of Georgia. Representative Jay Powell, House Rules Committee chairman, dead at 67. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. From the North Georgia Mountains to the Florida Line, from the Chattahoochee to the Atlantic Coast, we cover the entire state of Georgia. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Those of you watching the live stream uh, didn't actually click the button to, to go to the blank screen during commercial break, and Philip, who works with me, says, I was scared you were going to say something bad. <laughs> no, no, I left the room. I had to go get coffee and go to the bathroom. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, Dr. Laura is going to join me. Yes, that Dr. Laura. Uh, she's got a new book out. Uh, right now, though, I want to give you some useful information. For those of you who will be headed on the roads uh, tomorrow evening and beyond, uh, AAA expects a near record number of travelers across the U.S. over Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, not just Thanksgiving Day, but through the weekend, uh, 49.3 million people, a 2.8% increase from last year, will be traveling by car. A record number of Georgia residents are expected to travel throughout the holidays. More than 1.6 million Georgia residents expected to travel. 1.4 million people driving, a 3.1% increase over 2018. The 102-hour Thanksgiving holiday period technically begins 6 p.m. November 27th and ends 11.59 p.m. on December 1st, according to the Georgia Department of Public Safety. During the 2018 holiday, uh, there were 610 crashes and 242 injuries with 15 fatal crashes and 15 deaths. 
Avoid being on the roads between 5.30 and 7.30 p.m., uh, November 27th, and on December 1st that morning. Also, uh, you can expect massive delays at Hartsfield-Jackson to Dead Mares International Airport, and there will be, uh, it'll take four times longer on Wednesday and Sunday as commuters and travelers hit the roads. Although at the end of the holiday, some people will go Friday, some Saturday, some Sunday. It's more diluted. Georgia Department of Transportation has announced they're going to suspend road-related uh, road construction on interstates uh, between Wednesday and Monday. Long-term lane closures will remain in place for safety concerns. Uh, that's what you need to know. Now, I, I got to tell you, if you're traveling out of Two Dead Mares Airport, uh, one of the easiest things for you to do, honestly, is if you're in one of the areas that has uh, a commuter hub airport, if you're down in Albany, Columbus, Valdosta, Brunswick, Savannah, um, even Athens, I think, has a has a um, essential flight service into Atlanta, is go in from there where you won't have the burdens of trying to get through security at Two Dead Mares Airport in Atlanta. Uh, Two Dead Mares Airport is going to have massive delays. I remember years ago, and this has been a long time, and it's only gotten worse. It was after 9-11, so you still had the security situation. You didn't have TSA pre-check and clear at the time, but I had to go to Washington, D.C. for a job. I, I quit my law firm and got a job in Washington for a year, and I had to travel the day after Thanksgiving. It was incredibly terrible. I mean, it was it was awful. Uh, the day after Thanksgiving is the worst travel day of the year, uh, even more so than the day before Thanksgiving when it comes to, to flying. Uh, the number of people trying to go home from Thanksgiving break, because, you know, depending on your school, like my kids are out the whole week. And some schools are only out uh, like half a day Wednesday and then all of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But uh, so Friday, for the most part, people take off work. Now, it's technically a work day for a lot of people. Uh, in fact, at, at my at my other job, we got a notice that if you wanted to take off the day after Thanksgiving, you needed to make sure people knew because it was technically a work day and you would have to have that uh, counted against you for a holiday. But uh, there are going to be a ton of people on the road and it is going to be a mess and the airports are going to be a mess through the weekend. So um, you guys have a, a wonderful and safe Thanksgiving out there. Just be careful on the roads. Now, I, I need to bring you back up to speed on this news. The AJC is reporting this. Uh, it did happen uh, yesterday evening. Uh, the chairman of the influential Georgia House Rules Committee, Jay Powell, uh, died Monday. He was at Brasstown Valley Resort, 67 years old. He's a lawyer from Camilla. Uh, he was known as a, a um, advocate for rural Georgia and authority on tax policy. According to House Speaker David Ralston, this this loss touches us all and leaves a hole in our hearts and the whole of our House family. Jay Powell served with integrity and his leadership truly moved Georgia forward. Powell served one year as leaders of the Rules Committee, which decided which bills would receive the go to the floor. He had been the chairman of the Powerful Ways and Means Committee, the Tax Writing Committee. He championed efforts to revitalize rural areas, back legislation to fund Internet construction, expand rural transit, and give tax incentives to professionals to move to small towns. He was co-chairman of the House Rural Development Council. His efforts resulted in laws that allow local electric cooperatives to sell online services, permit more small hospitals, and distribute future tax revenues for Internet lines. 
Um, he was highly regarded across the aisle. Democrats, Republicans, both sending condolences and praises. Uh, Jay Powell was the was sixty seven years old. Um, the he became chairman uh, because the of the House Rules Committee last year because somewhat ironically, uh, Chairman John Meadows of Calhoun died last November at seventy four. So, uh, Chairman Meadows of Calhoun died at seventy four in November. Powell became the chairman of the House Rules Committee last year. And he's now died at 67. Uh, please keep his family in your prayers over this Thanksgiving period. There is other news in Georgia we should talk about, including a very interesting story about Teresa Tomlinson. Uh, and I want to get there, but before I do, uh, keeping on this travel theme for Thanksgiving, uh, Fox 5 Atlanta has done some research on the speed traps in Georgia. The towns where you are most likely to get a speeding ticket. You're driving through. This is uh, from Fox 5 Atlanta. Darien, Georgia is where they're riding it. Darien, huge speed trap. If you ever gone down 95, huge speed trap. McIntosh County down there. You're, you're driving through a Georgia town or county. Glancing your rearview mirror, you see something that's going to cost you big time blue lights. You broke the law. But did the city or the county do something equally troubling? Are they relying too much on ticket money to keep their budget in the black? In 2016, lawmakers approved legislation aimed at reducing the chance of communities running a speed trap. It limits speeding ticket revenue to 35% of the law enforcement budget. Any ticket for speeding over 20 miles above the speed limit is exempt. But go over that 35% limit and the police agency can lose its permit to run radar or laser. Few do. But critics say the law has done little to curb our state's dependence on fines and fees. Georgia's sort of one of the ground zeros for places where municipalities are very reliant on fines and fees for revenue, observed Joanne Weiss, uh, co-director of the Fines and Fees Justice Center in New York. The nonprofit is dedicated to reducing the amount of ticket money U.S. cities rely on to balance their budgets. She says most small cities get around 2% of their revenues from fines, fees, and forfeitures. But a nationwide study by the online magazine Governing 2019 found nearly 100 Georgia cities relying on tickets to fund at least 10% of their annual revenue. Uh, in Darien, founded in 1736, the oldest planned city in Georgia, 46% of its revenue comes from tickets. Now, the local communities protest, but I, I got to tell you, there's a situation, I think it's in Doraville. Uh, where there's actually a federal lawsuit about Doraville, which is on the, the north side of Atlanta, uh, right at the perimeter, uh, that they've actually had property inspectors ticketing residents and people for bizarre things. Uh, and one of the allegations of the lawsuit is you had a property inspector go to someone, go into someone's backyard, a fenced-in backyard not visible, and actually cite the person for not stacking logs correctly. They had logs for their fireplace, not stacked correctly. I'm not making this up. This is all part of a lawsuit. And also something like 75% of ticket revenue comes from people who don't live in Doraville. The police actually target people from outside the community. There's all sorts of data about this. It's a fascinating lawsuit. I hope they win. But So I've got the stats for you. Governing Magazine put this together. Uh, you, you will notice a pattern here. With very few exception, almost all of the major uh, 
problemed areas are either south of Macon or south of, or around I-16. Essentially, headed down I-16, headed 75 south of Macon. That's where you find the biggest problems, although not all. Lenox, Georgia, 80.9% of its general revenue comes from tickets. Now, I, I looked this up earlier. Now, I can't remember. I think it's right off 75 uh, Linux, Georgia. Yep, there we go. Apple, it is just off 75 south of Tifton, Georgia. In fact, the, the town limits uh, run there south of Tifton, Georgia. You've got the I-75 rest stop south of Tifton. That's Linux, Georgia. And they get on the overpass there as you're going through town and they give you tickets. It's a huge speed trap. You, you can't speed through Linux. Uh, let's see. What's the next one? Oliver, Georgia. Oliver, Georgia is uh, down uh, Georgia 17. It is uh, just to the northeast of Statesboro is Oliver, Georgia. Uh, Rocky Ford is number three, which is just up the road from Oliver. Interestingly enough, uh, let's see. Oliver does 76.5. Rocky Ford does 63.9% of its revenue. I didn't even know there was a Berlin, Georgia. Uh, I wonder if it's divided. Uh, Berlin, Georgia is, where is it? Oh, it is just near Adel. It's like 20 minutes from Adel to the west of Adel. If you're headed towards Moultrie or uh, Thomasville, you go, you, you got um, Berlin, Georgia, and it gets 63.7%. Then there's a Hiltonia. Um, my my apologies if I'm offending you with pronouncing the name of your town, uh, but Hiltonia, Georgia, is it is near Sylvania, Georgia. If you don't know where Sylvania, Georgia is, it is north of Statesboro. It, it's almost on the South Carolina line, very near the Savannah River, Hiltonia is. Some of these places I didn't even know, 57.5%. Now, in North Georgia, the biggest offender is Mountain City. Mountain City gets 57% of its tax revenue from tickets and then um hang on i let's see am i right on this one yes dillard georgia i knew i was right dillard georgia uh just north of mountain city it's in kind of the same boat dillard gets 55.4 percent of its revenue from uh from tax from tickets from fines so keep in mind here's the big list uh lennox oliver warwick rocky ford berlin hiltonia morvin mountain city dillard poland lumpkin omega stapleton greenville richland norman park darien sparks tunnel hill tallulah falls uh rimmerton hayhira Blythe, ashburn jonesboro resica turner county arcade hoboken Fairmont and Ludowicki. Ludowicki used to be the notorious speed trap. If I recall, there was a story about one of the old governors planting a big speed trap sign outside of Ludowicki, warning people that they were about to go through Georgia's most notorious speed trap. And uh, they finally got it. Now, Ludowicki is is light. It's it's down to 27.9%. But the big one, Lenox, Georgia, down in South Georgia, 80.9% of the revenue that comes into that city is based on speed trap tickets according to Governing Magazine. So be careful out there, particularly the further south you go. And I can tell you, I've never gotten a ticket. You know, in Georgia law, if you're not the state patrol, you can't use radar evidence uh, for people who are within 10 miles of the speed limit. If you're the state patrol, you're fair game. And the exception is 
over 35. If you're under 35, anybody can get you. But if you're going above 35 and you're within 10 miles of the speed limit, typically the police in Georgia leave you alone because there's a, a state law on the issue unless they themselves are driving. Around here in Monroe County, Georgia, there's a police officer who gets on the interstate and he drives precisely 70 miles an hour. And if you pass him, you get a ticket. He's not using the radar, so he's found his way around the law. Uh, and, and my wife has encountered this guy, and she was smart enough not to pass him. But the guy behind her in the pickup truck decided he was going to pass him because the I mean, the guy was on the nose, my wife said, 70 miles an hour. So this guy goes around him, and he's only doing like two miles, barely gets around him, takes him forever to even get around him because he's only doing a couple miles faster than the police officer. Immediately, the blue lights come on and pull the guy over for going over the speed limit. Uh, so those police officers exist out there. This guy's gotten all sorts of complaints in Monroe County. But you head to down south Georgia. If you're headed down to Florida, for example, you're going to Disney World or something for Thanksgiving. When you get to Byron, Georgia, Byron is further down the list, but it's on the list from Governing Magazine. But you, you get down to Byron, Georgia, you will start seeing uh, SUVs, police SUVs on the overpasses headed south. They don't do it as much on 16 because there's there's less swig room. 16, personally, I think we should turn into the Audubon. They should just get rid of the speed limit on I-16 headed to Savannah till you get to a Chatham County. Maybe slow it down in Lawrence County, the Dublin area. But in any event, you go down you go down 75, and when you get past Byron, you're going to start noticing. When you get to Warner Robins, they're hiding in the crepe myrtle bushes. They've got in, in the middle, and it's more bushes than trees. But then you get to Perry, and it's almost every other overpass is going to have a, a police SUV. Uh, they're running speed traps. And is, sure enough, the further south you go towards Valdosta, the more of these towns start creeping up the list of people running speed traps because it's these little towns that have the interstate running right by them. They've annexed that area. So the that part of the interstate is now technically in their jurisdiction, and that's where they're running the speed traps. you got to be careful about it. Uh, and I, I'm vehemently opposed philosophically to local governments using fines and fees to drive up their revenue. Uh, essentially, it's a tax on the poor. You can't get these people to grow your revenue base, so you do as much punishment as possible and make them fork over their money. And I'm glad the legislature's taken this on, but uh, I do think members of the legislature listening to this program this morning, be advised your law's not working and the local police and local governments aren't taking you seriously. It's time to do even more. I'm going to disagree with all of you including my producer, and I, I suspect I have a, an opinion of one here. Uh, President Trump has signed into law uh, the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, PACT, they're calling it. It criminalizes certain acts of animal cruelty. Uh, it is bipartisan legislation uh, out of the Senate uh, that has come into play, uh, basically giving federal, federal criminal status to certain acts of animal cruelty and torture, um, fighting animals and things like that. I, it is a meritorious piece of legislation, uh, and I'm opposed to it. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea. I, I know. I Don't hate me. Let me just explain. Uh, I believe that criminal law should be left to the states, uh, and I think what actually happens here is that it allows over-aggressive federal prosecutors one more thing to go after people on. I am not opposed to animal cruelty laws. I think every state should have one. I'm opposed to the federal government uh, expanding federal criminal law. We already have enough federal criminal laws on the books. Uh, we should have less criminal laws on the books at the federal government level. In fact, I think the federal government, by and large, should stay out of uh, criminal law enforcement altogether, except in rare circumstances. And I don't think animal uh, cruelty and animal welfare is one of those areas where we should 
have the federal government involved. And I know that makes me in the minority. People are going to say terrible things about me. I'm sure my producer is in the other room cussing me right now for saying this. Um, but I got to tell you, uh, I just am opposed to the expansion of federal law on this. Um, my apologies if that offends you. I, I'm, But uh, I will tell you that I take this across the board. It's not just on animal cruelty. <laughs> you should see it. They're like, no, you, you listen. I'm sorry. This is a, a principled philosophical stand that uh, I just think the federal government has expanded the federal government's criminal statutes too far. Uh, there are too many aggressive federal prosecutors who want to prosecute all sorts of people for all sorts of things uh, as they advance their political career. And uh, you go after the people who have abused the puppy dogs. You're going to have all sorts of great ad campaigns for yourself. Uh, but meanwhile, there's a state government with a state law that could not only do it, uh, but could get this through a, a court of law with a criminal jury quicker than you ever could as a federal prosecutor. Uh, I just... I, at some point, the federal government has to know its place. And I think one of the places to start is with criminal law. We have criminalized everything. You, you, you take your tag off your mattress, it's a, you, you've broken the law. Uh, you abuse your dog, yeah, you should go to jail and God is going to smite you. But let the state government do it. I think every single state already has a criminal statute for animal cruelty. I, I, I'm almost, I, don't hold me to it, but I'm sure, almost sure 50 states out of 50 states already punish animal cruelty. So what happens? Uh, the state punishes you for animal cruelty and under federalism, then the federal government comes along and says, hey, we're going to punish you for it as well. This is one of the things that, that happens. It is not double jeopardy because we have a, a dual government federalist system here. So you can be charged with a crime in a state court and then also charged with a crime in a federal court, and it can be the exact same crime. But you've broken the laws of a state and a federal government. That's why when the founders founded this country, you did not have criminal laws. In fact, if you'll recall, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, it was handled uh, by state courts in Texas because there was no federal criminal law against the assassination of a president of the United States. So it was a murder case in state court in Dallas. And since the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, federal uh, criminal law has just ballooned and everything becomes a criminal law now. Uh, I I'm not opposed to punishing people for animal cruelty. I think they should be. I'm just opposed to the federal government expanding criminal law in all cases. And it's feel-good legislation and their hearts are right. The intent is good. It's bipartisan. But I'm still opposed. I can be in the minority. That's okay. 877-973-7425 is the number. When we come back, Dr. Laura is going to join me to talk about her new book. We'll be back. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. In my house, my wife and my children every day on the way home from school listen to Dr. Laura on Sirius XM. Uh, she has played an just invaluable uh, role in our lives as a family, and I'm so delighted that Dr. Laura is joining me to talk about her new book, Love and Life. Dr. Laura, thank you for being here. 
Well, that's so sweet to know that. Give the wife and the kitties a big hug for me. Well, I, so I've had to lock myself in my home studio because they want to run in and, and, and take take control of this. I, I got to tell you, it, to get into your book, I just need to tell you that in, in 2009, my wife was having some health problems and... We just decided, you know, we're going to do exactly what Dr. Laura says. I got a second job, and my wife stayed home with our kids who were uh, – we had a one-year-old then and a three-year-old. And two, I guess three years ago now, she was diagnosed with a, uh incurable form of cancer. And we think, had we not done what you wanted us to do in 2009, uh, the, we would not have all the memories that our kids now have of their mom uh, as we now have this struggle. And so thank you. Oh my God! Uh, I don't mean to I throw you to throw that. that at you first thing in the morning, wow. but <laughs> so well, a couple of things that I got out of what you just said. Obviously, your wife married a real man, and I pray that this goes better than you all think. Well, we're hoping she takes a little. She takes medicine every day. It, it, it keeps the tumors from growing, and and we're in this fight for three years now. And man, we're having fun. Although I will tell you, I do blame you for part of this. Is she went out and got herself a Harley uh, as her therapy, and she <laughs> drives the countryside on her Harley now. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize yeah. for that. I wish you lived closer. I'd ride with her. There, there, there is no reason to apologize. She, she, she got a fat boy, which of course she named Sue, uh, her fat boy Sue. And so, <laughs> look, I, I, we we could talk all day about my wife, but we're here to talk about your book. And, and my wife actually stole my copy, so I had to go get my own copy. Uh, and I've been reading through it. And so, some of what I really like in your book is is not just talking about conflicts, but also now in the digital divide today when we're so plugged into screens and spouses texting each other instead of talking to each other. Uh, and I, I just, I mean, here's your opportunity to, to pitch your book, but in particular, I am just would love your thoughts on this digital divide we have now with raising kids. Well, I don't know if you ever watched, but I'm sure a lot of your audience saw Star Trek The Next Generation. I there was it. one episode in which they're on some planet, and uh, the people on this planet gave them these little these little sparkly helmets. And when they put the sparkly helmets on, they just went into this other place, like an LSD trip or something. And that was to represent what's going on all around the world. People are disconnecting from each other, even from themselves on any deep philosophical or spiritual level, and just going into this neverland. And it's hurting marriages. Children are on drugs, the suicide rate and the drug use among kids is skyrocketing. And you have to be dishonest if you're going to say it's not attached to what they're attached to, their cell phones, their iPads. I think this is a major disaster. And instead of dealing with what's really happening in our society with our children and our families, we're spending all our time on, I hate to say anything having to do with politics, but we're spending all our time on political divides. And it's childish, and it's dangerous. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that. I was just reading a couple of weeks ago a book, I think it was called iGen, that the the rate of teen suicide has spiked, and you can almost precisely put your finger on the spike as beginning with the release of the iPhone, when now you can suddenly see on Instagram your friends are at the party you're not at, and you used to never have any clue about it, and driving depression among teens. Well, that, that people in general are not hysterical about kids killing themselves at incredible rates and uh, shooting up schools and the rest of that, that has to all do with being disconnected from each other so there's no empathy. Empathy. 
Empathy means I can sort of feel your pain with you and I'll even cry. I mean, you got me upset with when you opened. I just want to scoop up your wife and hug her. Uh, so we are losing that empathy because it's all about the superficial and the non-existent. Because, you know, to use the, when I use the word friend, to me, it's a sacred term. When I think of my friends, I mean, they would da- just about lay down their lives for me and me for them. When you have a list of 50 friends on your Facebook, there's not one of them that would lay down their lives for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very true. Nor will they come bring you a meal when you're sick. Huh? No, no chicken soup. None. Right, exactly. Now, one of the things that you talk about in your book is something I, I talk about with my audience a lot, that we're, we're kind of in an age where it's almost as if the cultural forces in society want everyone who has traditional morality to think they're isolated and alone, and and it, it you've got to actually work to instill your values in your kids, otherwise they're going to get it from TV. Well, they're going to get it from their peers who have no values because the parents are on to their umpteenth marriages, shacked up, kids out of wedlock, going on and on and on. And uh, kids are kind of lost. And when they're kind of lost, you get Lord of the Flies. I mean, we're pretty clear that it requires the stability and the influence of adults, like grandparents who are there for you, to help guide you on a path that makes sense. I mean, morality is not just to cut into your fun. (laughs) It's to help you minimize pain in life well you know one of the, one of your chapters talking about bullying i have to tell you my my 10 year old we actually moved him from his old school because he was just being relentlessly bullied and this year new kid at school decided to bully him and he was complaining about it he gets very upset about these things and my wife says gunner what, what would dr laura tell you to do and he says take care of it and this kid charged him on the playground. Uh, apparently, kids are doing this thing now where they're poking you really hard with, with their fingers and, and cutting with the kid's fingernail. Um, Need him right where it counts. The kid hasn't messed with him since. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's, that's the politics that you have on the uh, playgrounds at school. But that's since the beginning of time. I mean, boys and girls would duke it out. And now we have this zero top policy you know, tolerance policy. I brought my kid up the way my mother brought me up. She said, don't hit anybody. Do not hit anybody unless they hit you or somebody else. Then hit them twice as hard. And the number one solution, there's only one solution to bullying. There is only one. All this nonsense of bringing kids into an auditorium and talking to them about communicate your feelings, learn to resolve things with words. It's just nonsense with kids that small. There's only one cure, and this is how you have to bring your kids up. You tell your children, should anybody be hurting somebody else, you step in. Instead, what you see, somebody's hurting somebody else, and all the other kids are taking video. So if instead of taking video, they all closed in on the bully, that would be the end of bullying. So everybody's got to bring up their kids to intervene, get an authority figure, but meanwhile, intervene, and it would stop it. Bullies count on sort of being a celebrity. Everybody takes their picture. Very much so. And, and thankfully, you know, our, our kids are at a school where the teachers backed up my son for he, he wasn't the instigator. He just solved it. Um, one last issue before I let you go. And I, I know your time is valuable. And I've been flipping through your book. And my time things, is your time right now. Sir. Well, listen, I appreciate it. Uh, one of the things that caught my eye in your book uh, was the subtitle. The subheading actually was lack of morality in relationships is no laughing matter. And you talk about a caller to your radio show that she's been dating, having sexual relations with a man who's shacking up with another woman in her early 40s. I, I'm 
I, you know, I, I grew up overseas, uh, in, then in rural Louisiana, now in Georgia, and, and I'm kind of shocked more and more now as I turn, get into my 40s, I'm encountering friends in these sorts of situations who just seem desperate to be in a relationship, and they're not actually grounded in any sort of faith or morality, and then wondering why they're not married. Grounded in no faith and morality is perfect, perfectly said. Uh, I think to some extent also you have the fear of really being vulnerable and intimate. When people repeatedly get into these relationships that cannot truly go anywhere, it's because they're too scared to be known on a deep level and truly be rejected. If you're with a jerk and it doesn't work, you can say he's a jerk. If you're with a really nice guy and it doesn't work, you have to look in the mirror. Let's avoid looking in the mirror. Let's be with a jerk. Best thing is get somebody who's murdered 20 people, is in prison for life, and you marry him. There's no way that relationship is going to fail. <laughs> I'm going to give that advice to a friend. <laughs> now, okay, last thing for you. you we're headed into Thanksgiving. We have all these stories. I don't know why the media feels compelled to run these, these stories of how to argue at Thanksgiving when people should instead be enjoying each other's company. But uh, what's your advice to people as they get around the Thanksgiving table with stress in their lives and, and the crazy uncle who, who wants to provoke them at the dinner table? How, how should people consider this? Well, this might be semi-shocking to people, but I don't think you should come together just because DNA uh, is in common. Uh, I only spend Thanksgiving with people I adore and want to spend the time with. So I have given advice for weeks now. If that's not the Thanksgiving gathering that you know is going to be comfortable and loving and warm, then pull out of it. Pull a bunch of people together with whom you can have something that's beautiful and do that. Uh, you, you know, you get to select People forget they have the power to choose, uh, and you can choose with whom you spend Thanksgiving. I'm spending it only with people. I know it's going to be warm and wonderful. That is good advice. Dr. Laura, it's been a pleasure. I didn't mean to catch you off guard at the beginning of our interview, but I just want you to know my family, we're huge fans of yours, and I thank you so much for spending some time and hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you to you. Lots of love. Thank you. Dr. Laura Schlesinger, her new book is uh, Love and Life. If you want a copy of it, text the word DATA to 33777. I'll send you back a link uh, to her book at Amazon. Text DATA to 33777 uh, for Dr. Laura's book, Love and Life. Uh, Again, I, I told you, my wife stole my copy of it uh it came in the mail the review copy and i we wound up uh i had to go out and get myself a copy of it It came out on friday uh, so i've been scrambling to try to to read through parts of it to be able to have a conversation with her today because you know one of my pet peeves with doing author interviews is i i've written books and i've gone on these interviews with people and no one has ever even opened a page of the book they have no idea they get a little pr sheet and say hey ask about these things well i don't want to ask them the same questions that everybody else asks them i want to be able to ask them uh, about things they wrote about in their book and have some unique things to do. So uh, I honestly, I, I was a little bit um, petrified of doing this interview, one, because I wasn't sure last week after we got the PR email, was was this actually going to be Dr. Laura? And uh, we were able to confirm that, yes, uh, we're, we're talking to Dr. Laura. And um, so then um, beyond that, to, to talk to her, because, you know, it, 
some people are into, I'm intimidated by Dr. Laura. Um, my whole family loves her though. Uh, her book though is called Love and Life uh, by Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Uh, it is all about uh, tough love advice on dating, marriage, child rearing, values, faith, resilience. Has a lot of anecdotes from people who have called her radio program. If you'd like to order a copy of it, text the word data, D-A-T-A to 33777. And I'm going to go on from here, take my time out so we can kind of reboot, regroup and get back into the other news of the day when we come back. Uh, it's surreal. I just had a conversation with Dr. Laura. <laughs> um, it, my, my, my wife and kids listen, oh, my wife in particular listens to her every day uh, that she's in the car. And um, for those who have no idea who I'm assuming everyone uh, except the millennials in the crowd know who Dr. Laura is. And even many of them, if they're female, know who Dr. Laura is. Uh, she got her start doing real truth on radio, essentially, um, around the country. And ultimately, some of her advice was too frank for some terrestrial audiences, uh, terrestrial and radio audiences. And she moved to satellite radio, uh, where she has been ever since. And is just a dominant force on Sirius XM. Uh, and giving advice to people across the country. It really is a fascinating show. Uh, I, I've never really understood who calls in to Dr. Laura's show. Uh, why do I mean, because she's ruthless in her tough love. And I mean, I've heard women call in and, and say they're they're living with a guy. And I mean, that she immediately throws the brakes on. It's just it's 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 a it is a deeply entertaining show to listen to, um, and she's clearly very compassionate about helping people. And and also some of these people, I, I'm just wondering why, and, and why do you not know this is a bad idea and you need to call Doctor Laura for this advice? But she's there to give you the advice you need. Uh, it's it's impressive. Um, okay, I want to move on. And again, you know, so so here I am against the federal law on animal cruelty, not because I oppose animal cruelty laws, but because I think the federal government uh, doesn't need the laws. And, and now there's a Georgia law that is uh, headed down the pike, probably going to pass. And I'm not sure I support it when, in theory, I should. It looks like the Georgia Senate is going to support changes to require anyone riding in a vehicle to wear a seatbelt. They're expected to pursue the legislation next session. It would make it illegal to not wear seat belts while sitting in the front or back seat of a passenger vehicle. It's currently illegal in Georgia to be in the front seat uh, without wearing your seat belt. Uh, but Georgia law only requires the front seat passengers have a seat belt. Uh, and anyone 17 or under in a back seat must be restrained. Adults, however, in the back seat are not required to buckle up. Uh, they do not have to have a seatbelt on in the back seat. John Albers from Roswell, the chairman of the committee studying this, said that the change is going to save lives. Uh, it is a bipartisan measure. I am reminded very much of the old quote from, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Everett Dirksen. It's, it's often attributed to him. No one actually knows where it came from, but Everett Dirksen was the uh, Senate Republican leader in Washington, D.C. during the 50s. And he had this great line uh, that every once there are two parties in Washington, the evil party and the stupid party. And every once in a while, the evil party, and the stupid party get together and they do something that is both evil and stupid. And the press heralds it as a bipartisan accomplishment. Um, I'm always weary of major bipartisan laws that do nothing but expand the powers of the government. And I look at this and like the. Really, listen, I, I, I wear my seatbelt when I'm in the back of someone's car because I don't want to be in a wreck and, and be thrown out. But 
I get the front seat passengers being required to wear their seat belts because uh, even minor wrecks can cause injuries and then you got insurance bills. And I guess when you look at it from the insurance angle uh, that it drives up insurance in Georgia, but is this really something that the government needs to worry itself about? Uh, shouldn't Darwin have some say in this? And if you're too stupid to know you should buckle up, then then you suffer the consequences. Uh, I, listen, I, I realize that's cruel of me to say, and, and people can get upset with me for saying it, but I, I just, I'm kind of thinking that, that we don't necessarily need a law in the state of Georgia to tell people to buckle up in the back seat. They should do it. And if they don't do it, then, oh, well, all right, before I get myself in any more trouble, I should probably move on. Uh, I, it, it, Teresa Tomlinson, you should know is in trouble. Not that, not that her campaign is in trouble, but she has really stepped in it, and they're having to deny that she's taken aim at Stacey Abrams, because you know, you, you can't criticize Stacey Abrams as a Democrat in Georgia. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson has a theory about why her party, this is from uh, David Rutz at the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, David, by the way, lives here in Georgia. Uh, Tomlinson has a theory about why her party keeps losing in her state of Georgia. Democrats have never run authentic candidates in the past who can appeal to voters in its central and southern regions. Republicans have for now 20 years been able to run the tables in central and south Georgia because we've never been able to run a candidate who's authentic and understands their lives and appreciate their life journey and understands their community, she tells the Free Beacon. Well, the mayor of Columbus does, and someone whose family's from central and south Georgia does. Now, I, I just just time out here. Here's a little more of what she, um, of what uh, her spokesman says, Nicole Henderson says. Um, Democrats do not normally run candidates from outside of Metro Atlanta, which allows the Republicans to run their rural strategy by claiming the Democratic candidate does not have an authentic connection to their non-Metro Atlanta life journey. Teresa's profile torpedoes that rural strategy. Her authentic profile relates to the non-Metro Atlanta audience. Y'all, this, this sounds to me like they are insulting Stacey Abrams. I mean, that, that's that's the way I read this as an insult uh, to to Stacey Abrams, that she's somehow not authentic, that Stacey Abrams could not connect people. You know, Stacey Abrams' sister is a judge in South Georgia. She's got family connections in South Georgia. Does Teresa Tomlinson not know that? I know that about Stacey Abrams. Does she not know that about Stacey Abrams? My goodness gracious, y'all. Uh, she's going... Listen, I, I have said for now since I've been on the air in August that Teresa Tomlinson is not a Democrat or Republican. She is an opportunist and she will say or do anything uh, to get elected. But what's so interesting here is she's come out in the past on the Green New Deal. Try selling the Green New Deal to farmers in South Georgia and see where that gets you because it's pretty anti-farm. Remember, uh, part of the Green New Deal is to transition uh, cattle, hog, and chicken farmers away from farming animals and get them to actually farm vegetables to get us off meat-based diets. That's actually part of the Green New Deal is farmers have to abandon uh, the farming animals, raising animals, herding animals, uh, breeding animals, butchering animals, because we all need to be vegetarian. So you'd have a complete reassignment of, of livelihood down in South Georgia, the poultry farmers down there, the, the, the pig and the cow farmers. 
down there are just unbelievable, but that's what they want, and that's what Teresa Tomlinson is campaigning on. Uh, this is as tone deaf as Stacey Abrams going down to South Georgia after Hurricane Michael hit two, three weeks before the election and telling people they didn't need to be in the agriculture industry anymore. That, by the way, is one reason that uh, Stacey Abrams did so poorly in South Georgia. The Kemp campaign seized on that clip and made sure everybody in South Georgia saw Stacey Abrams two to three weeks after a hurricane came through and wiped out people's livelihoods saying, hey, you don't have to be in agriculture anymore. You can get a better job. As if farmers aren't proud. I know a lot of farmers in South Georgia, and they are third and fourth generation farmers, deeply proud of it. Here comes a candidate saying you don't have to do it. Well, now here comes a candidate saying, hey, I support a policy that's going to upend your farm. You need to stop growing corn because it's not efficient, and you need to stop growing soybeans. You need to grow other crops that people can eat besides corn and stop raising cattle and hogs and chickens. That's going to go over brilliantly in South Georgia. She says she has a connection down to South Georgia. Ah, Where do they find these people? It's like Hollywood Central Casting for progressives. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia, the Eric Erickson Show. If you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This hour of the program is sponsored by First Liberty of Georgia. They're a building and loan. If you've got a small or medium-sized business, you want to be a big business, you need access to capital, they can make it happen without the bank bureaucracy and all that entails. Uh, the Frost family, good friends of mine, Uh, They make the business and lending decisions. Uh, If you need a loan for your business, go to First Liberty of Georgia. Tell them I sent you. The website is firstlibertyga.com. Doesn't matter where you are in the United States, they can help you. Across the nation, First Liberty of Georgia can help you. Firstlibertyga.com. Thank you to them for their sponsorship. Uh, We have internal housekeeping here. Uh, As I have mentioned earlier in the program, this entire program exists based on the generosity of listeners. Uh, we are growing across the state of Georgia. The part of the idea for doing this program was there are no major news outlets in the state of Georgia anymore that cover the entire state. Uh, being able to provide the news and commentary of what's going on and give you access to national and state leaders uh, through one-stop shop, 9 to noon, across the state of Georgia seemed like a no-brainer to me. Uh, my wife and I prayed about it. We put up money. Uh, we, we found a flagship station, WGAU in Athens, to launch it, and uh, we've been spreading across the state. In a couple of weeks, we will be all over middle Georgia. At the beginning of next year, we'll be pretty much in every corner of the state, save two, and by the middle of the year, we hope to be across the entire state. But it depends on listener support until we get our advertising going. If you want to advertise on the show, you can call us, 877-973-7425, the call-in number. Uh, we can get you in touch with the right people to advertise on the network across the state of Georgia. Um, but we also could use some donations. We actually had a donor step up and offer $20,000 to help us. Uh, we've got some expenses coming to help grow the show, and uh, they're going to do a match. If you're interested in supporting the growth of the show, text the word DONATE. To 33777. Text the word donate to 33777. Uh, you donate and they will match your donation up to 20000 and we're halfway to that goal. So uh, please help. Now, we need to get into, I, I, if you'll forgive, I, I want to do some Thanksgiving related stuff this week throughout the week. Uh, even into the weekend, people are still going to be thinking about Thanksgiving. And the Wall Street Journal has done this every year. And I've always found it somewhat humorous. Uh, Jason Gay has done this for nine years now. The rules of Thanksgiving touch football. I grew up in Dubai. And 
it was just us, uh, my three sisters, my my parents. And then when I was in fourth grade, my oldest sister moved away. Uh, Our school, our senior year was ninth grade, and then you went to boarding school. And so my oldest sister moved to uh, London to go to a boarding school there for two years before going back to Louisiana to finish up high school and living with my grandparents. And I'll never forget one year she had, she was in boarding school at Tassus in London and got pneumonia. My mother had to go to London to be with her and take care of her. And my dad decided, by God, we're still going to have Thanksgiving. And the Americans in Dubai, it was a, it was not a, uh, I mean, it was a spectacle for the people who lived in Dubai, uh, who would um, show up and the grocery stores, and there would be piles and piles of frozen butterball turkeys. For the Americans, uh, they would they would ship in frozen butterball turkeys from the United States for all the American families. I think my dad's company would distribute turkeys as well, if I remember right. But in any event, so in in I guess it was actually I was in fifth grade by then. My oldest sister, she's in London. She has pneumonia. My mom is gone. Um, so I'm I've been cooking since I was a little kid. So I make the pumpkin pie, the sweet potatoes, and the uh, pumpkin bread. My middle sister does the green beans and the mac and cheese and the mashed potatoes. My dad would carb load in our family. My dad does the turkey and he did cranberries and a few other things. I don't eat cranberries, but he and my sister wanted them. And I'll never forget my mom called from London uh, to wish us a happy Thanksgiving and to say she would be home. And we lived in a, a square house with a very flat roof in the middle of the desert behind a high wall. And the windows opened horizontally. They did not open vertically like American windows. They opened horizontally. You'd slide the windows. And we're on the phone with my mother. She calls in the middle of our Thanksgiving feast, just the three of us. The turkey is big enough for five people, and there are only three of us. It's in the middle of the table. It's surrounded by sides. Uh, The turkey has been cut. We have it on our plate when my mom calls, and we get up and we leave. The horizontal sliding window is very important because our cat knew how to open the window. And our cat slid the window open while we were on the phone. And when we come back to the dining room table, our cat, Thomasina, is on the dining room table devouring the turkey. <laughs> she's she's bitten into the leg. Part of the leg is gone, and she's she's moved on from the dark meat to the white meat and the breast. That was the first distinct moment I remember my father uttering a string of profanity. <laughs> and he picks up the turkey and throws the turkey out of the window that the cat has come in. <laughs> I mean, all of us by this point, we're all, we're, we're, we've all, we've all carved our, our food. So we're okay. I mean, we, we've still got food, but it's the rest of this giant turkey. We were going to have it, carve it and have it for sandwiches. <laughs> out the window it goes. <laughs> With the cat diving out of the window behind it. <laughs> I will never forget that. He was so mad. Now the problem was, is that so, so my family, uh, my, my mother called our cat the, the neighborhood whore. Um, yes, uh, yes, I, I did just go there. This cat, every several months, had had kittens, and w- the cat ultimately wound up dying. Our cat had so many kittens, you couldn't get the cat fixed there. 
Um, and it was just, it was a wild cat that had showed up and had essentially tamed us, uh, but it would leave. It, it would never stay. And this cat had so many kittens. Our entire neighborhood had a, a cat problem and everybody knew it's, it's our cat. What, what can we do? There's no vet there to take care of this cat. <laughs> they started putting out uh, poison in the neighborhood to kill all the stray cats. And our cat had had a litter of kittens. And we would keep our cat inside when the when the poison, we knew that they would send notices, so everybody would keep their cats inside. And we would try to keep Thomasine inside, but she slid the, the window open and was never seen again. Uh, but uh, multiple ones of her, her kittens stayed around the family. And so we had multiple generations <laughs> of this cat. But there were cats all over the neighborhood, and we had cats. The dogs couldn't get in because all the houses had big walls around them because the camels would otherwise come in and, and eat everything. So everybody had high walls around the houses, and all the cats could climb the walls. And we had an army of cats fighting over a turkey carcass in the yard for a day until my dad made me go out there with a shovel and bag it up and put it trash can <laughs> but so one of the things we did not do that was a roundabout way to, to get to this article in the wall street journal from jason gay is uh, we didn't have enough people in our family to do family football now my wife's family gets together in carrollton we'll be in carrollton uh for for festivities and they got enough people that that football games break out and so the wall street journal has helpfully uh put together rules every year for the family football game uh, and there's some great wisdom. Rule number one, uh, you do not need a football uniform to play Thanksgiving family touch football. Uh, don't be ridiculous. See the four-year-old over there wearing the Elsa dress she got after seeing Frozen 2? She's about to score 11 touchdowns in the dress and record four sacks. Uh, have you seen an Elsa dress with gas grass stains? It rules. Meanwhile, your cousin wearing the game-used Dolphins jersey is going to run into a tree just like the Dolphins. <laughs> Resist the temptation to play parents versus children. It's cute, but if the children are any good, the odds are the parents wind up in urgent care. Dad will throw at least one pass that he's he'll loudly say reminds him of his high school glory days. Keep in mind that Dad's glory days were roughly 7,000 years ago when he was the second-string kicker on the junior varsity, and back then they played with an armadillo carcass. <laughs> mom is the true athlete of the family everyone knows this yes in my family she is my wife had to explain football to me Shh. the trip i grew up in dubai we had camel racing the the triple reverse has never worked in the history of thanksgiving family touch football you think you're so blazing fast running around there in the backyard but you're not blazing fast you look like a bunch of turtles trying on sweaters at the gap uh, look at Cousin Dennis, uh, reinstated to the Thanksgiving family game after a two-year ban for bourbon-fueled rants about politics. Welcome back, Dennis. Uh-oh, Cousin Dennis has thoughts about Ukraine. <laughs> Don't listen to Cousin Sam or Cousin Rachel. They do not have instant replay highlights on their phone. If they ask you to come look at something on their phones, it's a trap. Probably their vacation in the Scotland. This year's Thanksgiving halftime show is just everybody standing around talking about Lamar Jackson. 
Speaking of which, anyone who attempts to scramble around the field saying, look at me, I've got more moves than Lamar Jackson, is about to fall over the next-door neighbor's garbage cans. When mom's playing wide receiver, she's entitled to run to the end zone and say, hey, over here, I drove you to soccer practice for 14 years. When grandma's playing wide receiver, she's allowed to run to the end zone and say, hey, over here, I drove mom to soccer practice for 14 years. When great-grandma plays it, she gets to say, hey, bring me some brandy. <laughs> and on and on it goes. Um, there are Those aren't infants crying in the house. Those are Bears and Lions fans. Please ignore them. There are only two types of Labrador retrievers at a touch football game, a Labrador retriever who runs onto the field and steals the football, and a Labrador retriever who's about to run on the field. Be careful of your dogs at your Thanksgiving football game. Also, don't let your uncle smoke during the game. You'll get burned by the ash. <laughs> now, all of this ties in again to the series of articles that are being trotted out across the place uh, with uh, more and more views on arguing at Thanksgiving and uh, how to argue at Thanksgiving, how not to argue at Thanksgiving, how to handle your family at Thanksgiving. And uh, someone in California has invented marijuana infused gravy for Thanksgiving. Um, you don't have to worry about the turkey tryptophan. Uh, your mood at Thanksgiving will improve with this powdered gravy. You add water, you heat it, you stir it, you eat it, and you don't tell anyone that it has marijuana in it. It is a cannabis company called Kiva Confections that has manufactured this turkey gravy loaded with THC. Uh, they say it's made of uh, cutting-edge technology that bypasses edibles' normally lengthy trip through the liver, instead absorbing into the soft tissue in stomach. Awkward family conversations. In just 15 minutes, you'll start feeling the effects and let the holiday cheer wash over you. The gravy packet includes turkey stock, garlic, onion, salt, and 10 milligrams of marijuana in a single serving packet. And so your family can get baked instead of arguing at Thanksgiving. What on earth is the world coming to? Only in California uh, would they do something like this. You try it here in Georgia, you're going to get arrested or, well, your mom's going to get mad at you. Well, y'all, uh, we do need to get into uh, the Bloomberg Elizabeth Warren stuff. They have started a feud and people are already picking Bloomberg apart. He's kind of fallen flat in his initial rollout on the campaign trail. Listen to this from his speech. Protecting women's and LGBTQ rights, supporting our veterans and reestablishing America's place in the world as a force for peace and stability. But more than plans, I offer the leadership to turn plans into reality, to roll up my sleeves, to motivate our country, to unite and rebuild America, and make it fairer and better. I'm ready to get to work, so let's get it on. Uh, let's get it on. You know, that was a little bit creepy. Here's Elizabeth Warren on Mike Bloomberg. I think Michael Bloomberg is wrong, and that's what we need to prove in this election. Think about it this way. You know, his view is that he doesn't need people who knock on doors. He doesn't need to get out and campaign with people. He doesn't need volunteers. And if you get out and knock on a thousand doors, he'll just spend another $37 million to flood the airways. And that's how he plans to buy a nomination in the Democratic Party. 
I think he's fundamentally wrong. You think he's fundamentally wrong. Well, she also says this. So I am here on day two of Michael Bloomberg's $37 million ad buy. You know, Michael Bloomberg is making a bet about democracy in 2020. He doesn't need people. He only needs bags and bags of money. Candidate, is he already running? I don't know, but I do know this, and that is elections should not be for sale. Not to billionaires, not to corporate executives. We need to build a grassroots movement. That's how democracy is supposed to work. You know, she's she doesn't seem to be a fan of Mike Bloomberg and his billions. You got to feel somewhat bad for Tom Steyer, the the billionaire who's running, because uh, she never went after him. Of course, he hasn't done anything to gain traction. She knows that Bloomberg has a team around him that may be bleeding him dry, but also he's got the money to be blood dry and still gain traction. Unlike Tom Steyer, who who Steyer is not nearly the billionaire that Bloomberg is. Which is kind of funny when you think about it. But, um, man, uh, she's not having it with Bloomberg. Bloomberg, of course, doesn't need Elizabeth Warren's attacks to to flounder around. This is an old clip from Mike Bloomberg. uh, And it's resurfacing, of course, in the opposition research to Bloomberg. But listen to what he says. Some people say, well, taxes are regressive. But in this case... Yes, they are. That's the good thing about them, because the problem is in people that don't have a lot of money. And so higher taxes should have a bigger impact on their behavior and how they deal with themselves. So I listen to people saying, oh, we don't want to tax the poor. Well, we want the poor to live longer so that they can get an education and enjoy life. And that's what, why you do want to do exactly what a lot of people say you don't want to do. The question is, do you want to pander to those people or do you want to get them to live longer? And there's just no question. If you raise taxes on full sugary drinks, for example, they will drink less. And there's just no question that full sugar drinks are one of the major contributors to obesity. And obesity is one of the major contributors to heart disease and cancer and a variety of other things. Mm. So it's like saying, I don't want to stop using coal because coal miners will go out of work. Well, will lose their jobs. We have a lot of soldiers in the United States and the U.S. Army, but we don't want to go start a war just to give them something to do. And that's exactly what you're saying when you say, well, let's keep coal killing people because we don't want coal miners to lose their jobs. The truth of the matter is there aren't very many coal miners left anyways, and we can find other things for them to do. But the comparison is a life or a job, or taxes or life. Which do you want to do? Take your poison. So tax the poor so that the poor curb their choices and in curbing their choices, they will live longer. I'm, this is just a, a very weird thing for anyone to say. But, you know, part of the problem here is that Bloomberg is a billionaire. And I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a billionaire. Um, but Bloomberg can can spruce it up as much as he wants. He's a self-made man. He was from the middle class and he made his billions. But, you know, Bloomberg reportedly every weekend gets on his private plane and flies to his private island in the Bahamas. 
And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but you begin to relate to a different world. Um, so I, I've got a friend who has, he's from a very middle-class background and has become very, very wealthy. And he has noted how he has trouble relating now to friends uh, and friends have trouble relating to him and he's bothered by it. Uh, and it, he's not, he's not at the level that Mike Bloomberg is, but he notices it. Um, <clears throat> I notice it in what I do. And when you get to the level of Mike Bloomberg, uh, the world and money have different values and, and prospects. For example, I, I had to meet with a billionaire a couple of years ago and I couldn't get him on the phone. We were supposed to meet and they had to cancel and they rescheduled. And I thought, have I offended this person? What have I done? No, it turned out uh, he had to go away for a few days and needed to reschedule. And the reason was because a restaurant opened in Hong Kong that was getting amazing reviews and he wanted to go check it out. And so he decided to take his private jet to Hong Kong for dinner. I'm not making that up. Uh, who does that? Well, billionaires do that. Um, and when you are, are in a world where a new restaurant opens in Hong Kong and you live on the East coast of the United States and can not only get a reservation, but then get in your Gulf stream and fly to Hong Kong to get to your reservation. That's a different world. And it is a world where Bloomberg thinks, Hey, if I just tax the poor on their sugary drinks, they'll stop drinking their sugary drinks. How has that really worked on tobacco and things like that over time? They've just moved on to other things, perhaps, or maybe they're still smoking. But that's not the world Mike Bloomberg lives in. My goodness, people really dislike Pete Buttigieg within the black community of, of progressive activists. They really dislike Pete Buttigieg. He's not helping himself. Uh, Buttigieg is out uh, saying, you know what caused the conflict in Syria? <laughs> Oh, you know what he's going to say. Now, you mentioned the security component uh, of climate. This is very important because we are already seeing evidence that conflict and migration crises are increasing because of things like droughts and fires that are accelerated by the problems in our climate. There's some evidence that this contributed, for example, to the Syrian civil war. Yep, there you go. Uh, climate change is the Syrian civil war issue. Well, there's the root is a, uh, I mean, the root is hysterically, um, they really are hysterical people here. It, it is black news, opinion, politics, and culture. If you want a hot take that involves race, you go to the root and boy, do they have one on Pete Buttigieg and I'm seeing it being circulated all over the media. The title, and I can read you the title. The title is safe to read on air. Pete Buttigieg is a lying MF. That's the title, the letters included. 7,000, I'm just going to read you part of this, and, and I got to be delicate here because I got to make sure there are some words I can't, there are a lot of words I can't read. $7,322. I hid it in a white piggly wiggly bag in the back of the dishwasher. Every single time I returned to that tiny apartment, I opened up that white Kenmore dishwasher and made sure it was there. It was not a gift. It was not a reward. It wasn't even mine, and it still wasn't enough. I'm from what most people would call the hood, the bad section of town, you know, where black people live. 
During the crack revolution of the late 80s to get to school every day, I would give a friendly nod as I walked past the early rising dope boys. I meandered through the projects, and if it had recently rained, I waited for someone to help me put a 10-foot-long wooden plank across the ditch that separated the black part of town from the bucolic neighborhood where the only white or the only high school in town was located. If no one was there or if a prankster had hidden the makeshift bridge, then I had to either leap across or walk the long way around, adding 15 minutes to my morning walk. Our neighborhood had no bus, so you either walked the balance beam behind the projects, took the 30-minute stroll, or you said words I can't say on radio. If I had chosen to keep my mama's lights on instead of making that daily trek, my decision wouldn't have been based on a tropological dearth or of motivation or communal ambivalence. As I grow older, I realize I wasn't gifted, talented, or even diligent. I was just lucky. Presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg is lucky, too. He attended one of the best private schools in the country that was quite literally on the campus of one of the best colleges in the country, University of Notre Dame, where his father worked as a professor for 29 years. His mother taught at an even better, more elite school. And if you ask how he got into Harvard or became a Rhodes Scholar, Mayor Pete would probably insist that it had nothing to do with whiteness. He would likely tell you he valued education and had great role models, both of which are probably true. There's no question he's an intelligent, hardworking, and well-educated person. But he didn't have to jump a ditch to go to school. So when a clip surfaced of Buttigieg explaining why black kids fail at school so often, his answer made perfect sense. Kids need to see evidence that education is going to work for them, Buttigieg explained whitely. While he was running for mayor in 2011, you're motivated because you believe that at the end of your education, there's a reward, there's a stable life, there's a job. And there are a lot of kids, especially in the lower income minority neighborhoods, who literally just haven't seen it work. There isn't someone who they know personally who testifies to the value of education. I want to be clear. Pete Buttigieg is a lying. <clears throat> this is not a misunderstanding. This is not a misstatement. Pete Buttigieg went to the best educational institutions America has to offer, and he, more than anyone on the planet, knows that everything he just said is a bald-faced lie. Majority-minority schools receive $23 billion less in funding than majority white schools, according to a recent study by EdBuild. Black students in Indiana, the state where Buttigieg served as mayor and across the country, are disciplined more harshly than white students. But even though Buttigieg has never attended a school with more than 10% black students, he thinks he knows what's stopping black kids from achieving their educational dreams. Apparently, it's not the fact that the unemployment rate for black college graduates is twice as high as the unemployment rate for white grads. Black college grads are paid 80 cents of every dollar a white person with the same education earns. White people leave college with lower debt and higher earnings. White kids get more resources, more advanced classes, to have access to more technology. But Pete says it could all be solved with a vision board. Mayor Pete's BS is not just wrong, it is proof. It proves men like him are willing to perpetuate the fantastic narrative of black neighborhoods needing more role models and briefcase carriers than make the people in power stare into the sun and see the blinding light of racism. Get along moderates would rather make stuff up out of whole cloth than wade into the waters of reality. Pete Buttigieg doesn't want to change anything, he just wants to be something. Yikes. Uh, and it goes downhill from there, and oh my goodness. Um, and it's, 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 I mean, there, let me give you the related stories. Mayor Pete ain't gonna lie, Deval Patrick is gonna try, and the Harris campaign won't die. 2020 presidential black power rankings. Pete Buttigieg faces the ire of black South Bend residents after fatal shooting. What would black America be like under Mayor P or President Pete? Ask South Bend. 
I'm going to Dingus Day, says Karima Fowler, city clerk for South Bend, Indiana. When I called for an interview, what's a dingus, I asked, desperately trying not to giggle like a seventh grader. Fowler explained that Dingus Day is a big festival for South Bend's Polish community, a day for state and local politicians to do some real retail politicking before the black community. It's called Solidarity Day. The black community was like, you politicians need our vote, so instead of us coming all the way over to the Polish side of town, you need to come over here, she said proudly. This year, Mayor Pete dutifully came to the African-American Elks Lodge and renamed the local intersection Solidarity Day Drive as part of the Dingus Day tradition. It's a symbolic gesture, but a telling one even on a national scale. If Mayor Pete wants to extend his reach from media darling to actual Democratic contender, he'll need to reach out to black voters, the backbone of the Democratic Party, and he'll have to do more than symbolic gestures. If my conversations with black residents of South Bend are any indicator, it's not yet clear he's up for the job. Ask African-Americans about Mayor Pete Buttigieg's relationship relationship with the black community and the midwestern politeness comes out they like him he's smart he's their mayor but i can't necessarily say that relationship is good but i'll say he's come a long way says fowler a Buttigieg supporter he's evolving he's getting better you don't know what i don't know or or what you hear about mayor pete from black residents you can almost hear a collective church clap and a bless his heart as they detail his numerous early stumbles with black voters, some are less diplomatic. South Bend has one of the darkest histories of segregation of anywhere in the country, and it's something we still haven't properly addressed, says Nate Levinap Aspenson. He's an activist and grant writer from Durham, North Carolina. A white millennial, he moved to South Bend with his wife right around Mayor Pete's second term. We talked as he campaigned for Regina Preston, and on and on. Have you always noticed that it, it's always the... the um, white progressive millennials who are more outraged about everyone else's existence. Uh, that is something random here. But it, it, all of this gets to, uh, goodness gracious, uh, Mayor Pete has some serious problems in the black community. In fact, when you look at the, the power rankings of candidates out there, he is well down beneath pretty much anyone. Um, they don't like him. They don't think he's in touch with the black community. They think he's all for show. And they're ready to move on to other people. They don't even want him there. Um, you know, but there's another issue out there as well. Black voters are increasingly realizing that the Democratic Party uh, is exterminating black children through aggressive advancement of abortion politics. And here comes Mayor Pete saying abortion is biblical and people should do it. Uh, yeah, he, seriously, he's trying to justify his support of abortion through the Bible. Uh, I want to play this audio of a C-SPAN call. I know it's a C-SPAN caller, but it's actually a conversation on C-SPAN uh, with callers. A uh, black voice on, on C-SPAN, one you're not probably going to hear from a lot of the mainstream media, but it's a growing concern. My biggest issue with the current Democratic candidates as it comes to the black community is that all of them are pushing for poor women of color to have access of, to abortion. That's all that you hear. Since abortion, Roe versus Wade has been passed, 46% of the black population has been aborted. Exactly. To me personally, you don't have my best interest in mind. If only thing you're offering me is access to abortion to kill my child before it has a chance to live, and then also free welfare. Black people have been voting Democrat for the past 60 years, and it has done absolutely nothing for us, but kept us stagnant on welfare. And now here we are with 46% of the black vote, I mean the black people, the black population being aborted. Yeah, I mean, so 
I, I don't agree. I believe that in the candidates that are running as Democrats, a lot of them have also fought for black maternal health mm -hmm. within their own respective states and oh. in Washington. Cory Booker, what? Kamala well, Harris. Cory Booker actually said that he wanted to designate an office in the White House when he wins strictly to reproductive health, to making sure that poor women of color have access to abortion. Why are, not, why are they not asking for reproductive health is not simply about abortion. Reproductive health is not simply about abortion. Right. Uh, it really is the, amazing the euphemisms that are out there. The Babylon Bee had, had a... Um, They had a. Let me see if I can actually find. You know, the Babylon Bee is the is the Christian um, parody site. Uh, Babylon Bee. Um, oh my gosh, my brain suddenly went blank on how do you actually spell? Uh, it's Babylon Bee. How do you spell Babylon? Uh, <laughs> New York. Um, so the Babylon Bee has this story out, and it is a planned freedomhood. That um, slavery is more than slavery. It's also about uh, plantation health. <laughs> you know, this, uh, the entire article highlights how it is a fact, and you're going to be mad at me for saying it, and it's true. The arguments of abortion rights activists are the exact same arguments used by slaveholders prior to the Civil War. Um, it's not a body. It's not a human uh, it's my body. It's my property. Um, it can't survive anyway uh, without us. Uh, and on and on it goes. And it that's just, it, it's scary to me how, uh, in fact, I brought this up on uh, CNN because um, the, I think the president or the vice president had mentioned this and, and uh, I was defending them on this. Uh, it's true. Here it is. Uh, this is from the Babylon Bee. It, it, they say it's this is an editorial, an op-ed by Planned Freedomhood. Uh, headline, Slavery is Plantation Care. A lot of talk's been going around about suggesting that slavery is morally wrong, that it's a horrifying human rights violation, that future generations will be greatly ashamed of. The problem is that critics of safe, legal, and rare slavery aren't looking at the big picture, that slavery isn't just a right, it's actually a moral good, and that allows us to avoid inconvenient employment costs. Our economy would collapse without slavery. Can you imagine a United States without the unassailable right to own slaves? No, we didn't think so. But the religious right, obsessed with controlling what plantation owners do with their own plantations, wants to end all this. We cannot let these religious zealots take away our constitutional right to choose slavery. The reality is that slavery is not a subjugation of a human being or an oppression and slaughter of an entire race of people in this great country. No, on the other hand, slavery's plantation care. Since this is such an obvious and important truth, we're going to repeat it many times interspersed with clapping emojis. And if anyone criticizes you for your personal decision to have slaves, just remember to clap back with these powerful words, my plantation, my choice. I love the Babylon Bee website, and and they're I mean so spot on with this. It really is uh, interesting to watch in the black community the light bulbs coming on of women realizing that the Democratic Party has left them behind, and their solution to their problems is for black women to kill their children. 
And I, I you know, I, I don't like to dance around euphemisms, and I realize abortion is actually one of those topics they tell you never talk about in talk radio, that you've got a conservative audience, but they don't want to talk about it. It's, it's like the opioid addiction. Do you know I've had several programmers for different TV and, and radio stations and even newspapers, uh, editors, tell me that uh, the story that they find kills their traffic is talking about the opioid addiction. And one of the reasons that the opioid addiction kills traffic to TV and radio stations is because everybody knows a family that has struggled with this problem and they don't want to have to keep thinking about it. And you bring it up on on radio and TV and suddenly people are thinking about it again. It is very much the same way with a lot of people in abortion. They say they're pro-life, but please never make me have to think about what's going on there. Uh, and occasionally you got to bring it up and I'm just not one to nuance around the euphemism of abortion when you're actually ripping apart a human being and in Planned Parenthood's case, selling the parts uh, for scrap. But, you know, the Babylon Bee has become so good at parody. What I find hilarious are the number of sites like Snopes, for example, that have fact-checked the Babylon Bee, and they fact-checked the Babylon Bee because people were treating the stories as real, because some of them, you know, you you tend to think the stories probably are true. Uh, for example, here, let me read you some of the headlines at the Babylon Bee. Uh, Disney capitalizes on success of Baby Yoda and Mandalorian with new Baby Jar Jar. <laughs> Nerdy guy at church automatically assigned to tech ministry. Millennials in panic as outraged boomers threaten to withhold participation trophies. New ultrasound technology can detect up to 50 genders. Progressives try new strategy to win the hearts of Americans, interrupting college football. And that, by the way, is not actually a parody. The environmentalist climate change activists at Harvard and Yale stormed onto the field and blocked the game from being carried on as a protest against climate change. Way to win friends and influence people with your protest there, climate change greenies. But you know, the one thing is, I didn't even know Harvard and Yale had football teams anymore. I would have never known about the Harvard-Yale football game had these idiots not stormed onto the field and tried to block it. They've also got one that I just find hilarious about the whole Chick-fil-A scandal leaving Salvation Army headline. Lemonade turns to blood at Chick-fil-A locations across the country. After Chick-fil-A caved to the LGBTQ community and agreed to stop donating money to certain Christian organizations. The lemonade at various Chick-fil-A locations immediately began turning into blood. Uh, boss, you'd better come see this, cried one employee at an Albany location. I just squeezed the lemons like normal, I swear. A Chick-fil-A location in Toledo was swarmed with frogs and locusts while the judgment of darkness fell on other restaurants throughout California, though that may just have become a power outage. <laughs> Restaurant representatives quickly spun the news and said the beverage is their new blood orange lemonade and it's rich in iron. <laughs> There's no problem here, said a nervous Chick-fil-A spokesperson. Liquid turning to blood is always a sign of God's favor throughout the Bible. In fact, it means our lemonade uh, has that extra special blessing from on high. It's rich in iron and good for your immune system since we don't know what's in there and it will probably strengthen you up if it doesn't kill you. <laughs> A booming voice from the heavens reportedly was heard above several Chick-fil-A's saying, let my Christian organizations go. <laughs> well played, Babylon B. Well played. Okay. Funny story here. I want to read you uh, the stupid, stupid, stupid Twitter and its redesign, how it, how it rearranges stuff. Uh, so there is a $135,000 dollar dinner that you can get um and it is a gold encrusted gold flake 
gold dust encrusted turkey uh, with all sorts of fancy sides and whatnot. And you too can get that uh, dinner if you want. $135,000. It is the world's most expensive. Oh, wait. No, no. It's $150,000. I'm sorry. Um, that's wrong. And let's see. This is from Yahoo Finance. There are lots of things in life you might expect to cost $150,000, probably not the Thanksgiving dinner, and yet that's exactly what Old Homestead, a New York City steakhouse, is offering this year. And what it builds is the most expensive Thanksgiving dinner in history, topped with a record set by the $76,000 dinner the restaurant offered last year. This year's dinner total price of $150,000 is three times more than the average U.S. household income. Uh, what's in it? Well, you've got a, uh, a free-range organic turkey sprinkled with gold flakes. That means it's a tiny turkey. Uh, it's all about opulence. Uh, the gold-dusted Maserati stuffed turkey is really just the beginning. The dinner boasts stuffing comprised of $75 sourdough bread from the U.K., a $425 per pound imported Japanese pork mixed with $2,500 per pound of White truffles, king oysters at $100 a pop, and um, Opus One, um, whatever. Y'all, they ran the same story last year. Ran the same story. Um, an advertising ploy uh, by people designed to generate news and controversy, which is fascinating uh, although let's see, last year it was 135, no, 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 last year it was 180, this year it's $181,000. Last year it was $150,000, but it's the exact same restaurant, the exact same, uh, story. And it's essentially free advertising is what's going on here. They do something outrageous to get attention around Thanksgiving and people rush to them. If you want to pay $180,000 for your Thanksgiving turkey, you go on and do it. See what I was talking about earlier with, with billionaires being out to lunch and they live in a completely different world? You nor I would ever even consider a $135,000 meal for Thanksgiving, and yet some billionaire somewhere probably would. Now, before we get out of here, i got to leave you with this story. Uh, this is in Politico. Uh, the headline is, Waiting for Obama. The Democratic establishment is counting on him to stop Trump and perhaps stave off Bernie as well. But can his cerebral politics still galvanize voters in the age of extremes? Whatever. Uh, the man deeply divided the country. But uh, there's this anecdote. Uh, Obama decided to stay in, in D.C. instead of moving back to Illinois. When Obama tried to join Woodmont Country Club, a predominantly Jewish club in Rockville, Maryland, some members tried to block him because they deemed his views on Israel to be insufficiently supportive of the Jewish state. When the TIF became public, Obama joined Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase instead. Mostly white Catholics, said a member there. It wasn't the end of his golf club difficulties. Columbia has a strict policy that allows members to have just one guest at a time. But Obama was bringing in three. There was a whole internal process to figure out how to tell the former president. Once he knew, he complied. The rules just don't seem to apply to Democrats the way they apply to the rest of us.